This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I cannot remember how long ago it was that somehow I procured the book Isis Unveiled by H.P. Blavatsky. All I know is that I opened it, read a few pages, and was impressed, confused, bewildered, but I kept on reading. I've read other uh, books from the Theosophical Society before, and in the back of my mind, I've always said, you know something, one of these days, Common Threads has got to do something on Theosophy. Well, we're finally doing that, thanks to David Moore here at WGVU. He put me in contact with John Rao of the Theosophical Society here in West Michigan. John has studied comparative religions and Theosophy since uh, his late teens and early 20s, on the American Road, as he puts it. And he opened a bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1984, soon after joined the Theosophical Society. And with his wife, uh, they have conducted public discussions and presentations from that point forward. John moved his uh, bookshop to Grand Rapids in 1990, and also the Theosophical work at that time. And he moved the bookstore to Macosta in 1999. And also at that time, with other West Michigan workers, founded the Great Lakes branch of the Theosophical Society, Pasadena. So, John Rao, welcome to Common Threads. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Why the uh, focus you've mentioned in your bio and on your business card, why the uh, focus on Pasadena? Well, there are, well, originally in the uh, formation of the Theosophical Society, which is quite a different thing between the society and theosophy. Uh, there was one society, but as many movements do as they progress, uh, it has broken off into more than one organization. We all go about our own work in our own way. Uh, Before the turn of the last century, uh, William Judge, which was the co-founder of the Theosophical Society and with Blavatsky uh, in New York, uh, headed up his movement, which became what is now the Pasadena Movement. Uh, others uh, went their way in Europe and, and America, too, and other parts of the world, and that is another society. Today we see three large theosophical societies all doing their work in, in their various focuses. So we usually put the word Pasadena after that so people know who we are, where we come from. Our international headquarters are in Pasadena, California. You're Vatican, so to speak. Well, I wouldn't call it a Vatican, no. I know. (laughs) In fact, some people even object to the word headquarters. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Some people that I've met. Okay. Yeah, it's it's where our focus is, where our press is. We we publish probably the book that you were talking about, most of the uh, classics of Blavatsky, the Isis, for example, and the Secret Doctrine and the others, that you see on the shelves in many of the bookstores come out of Theosophical University Press, which is our publishing arm, and is also in the Pasadena area, just down the street, Altadena. Okay. It's okay. all volunteer press. My guess is that we're probably going to have to start 
from the very beginning for a lot of folks. Okay. Uh, theosophy, I mean, it's not the Baptists uh, in terms of uh, how familiar people are mm-hmm. with, uh, sure. with any particular philosophical or religious movement. May I guess that theosophy uh, is the conjoining of the words theology and philosophy? Well, it, theosophy is a compound word that's taken from the Greeks, uh, and it's divine wisdom. Some people would say it's the wisdom of the gods or God wisdom. Um, so we, uh, as various theosophists uh, who all have their own point of view, which is very important, uh, see theosophy itself uh, however they might picture it. And then, of course, the Theosophical Society would be uh, the arm that keeps the books in prints and the work going and, and things like that. But theosophy itself... Uh, really has uh, a life of its own, which from our point of view, uh, theosophy is the universe, is how it came into existence, is, uh, even the bold statement might be made that it is the the seed, the, the theosophical ideas are the seed for all world religions. Um, and it itself is not a religion. I was going to ask, it is not a religion. So well, people can use it if they like, uh, in re- as a replacement for their religion. But most people, if they are uh, religious, uh, that I've encountered, use uh, theosophy to enhance their own religious experience. So there is nothing even remotely like a clergy? No. No, there's, there is not. It's, uh, there are what we often refer to as verbal symbols. And uh, as you... Uh, no, uh, in the East, there's a, a Hindu way of thinking of uh, jnana yoga, which mm-hmm. is a, a constantly ever-changing picture of truth for for uh, students on a given path. Uh, we look at these uh, uh, theosophical ideas in the same way. Uh, they may mean uh, something to someone else. Many of the Ideas, rather than teachings, although we can use the word teachings if we like, that come through the theosophical classic texts. Many of the ideas uh, continue to uh, inspire people, and other people take some of the ideas and say, you know, I can't live with that one, and you know, but I I like some of the other stuff. It's about universal brotherhood, and from a theosophical perspective, universal brotherhood is all-inclusive, not just humans. It's the animals and the vegetables and the planets and the solar systems and the stars and the energies that go up to make up everything that we are. Uh, Theosophy is a... uh, Theosophy doesn't need the society, but there are societies, as there always will be as long as we're striving. Can you speak a bit about the founders, about Blavatsky, and uh, who did you mention just a minute ago? William Judge. William Judge, yeah. Let's yeah. Well, you know, in New York City in, in uh, uh, 1875 was the formation of what's become known as the Theosophical Society, and uh, definitely a focus on what can be called the modern Theosophical Movement. Uh, from that point, forward, 
many things have, have changed and, and, and gone their, their various ways and, and uh, different organizations, as we just talked about. Uh, Blavatsky was a, uh, a Russian who uh, circumnavigated the globe, you know, depending upon which biography or history you read, you know, two or three times, visiting uh, different cultures, different religious groups, studying. Um, she left when she was in her late teens. Did she have uh, a religious background at all? She was born into, I believe, the Russian Orthodox uh, faith. And uh, her father was a military man. Her grandfather had a vast library. Her grandmother was a, a writer and a scientist, and her mother was also a writer. And uh, so she had uh, quite a lot of influence uh, from her surrounding family members. Um, she was a very talented, uh, voracious reader, obviously, and, and uh, she comes to New York City eventually after her travels, and she had, of course, passed through America before. And uh, with Henry Steele Olcott, uh, who is a uh, uh, fellow that went to work with her, uh, and William Judge and others, they formed the, the Theosophical Society one night in, in a, a flat in New York City. Uh, Olcott uh, was the uh, president of the Theosophical Society. He was a great manager he was a Civil War veteran, uh, colonel, like as many men took the name colonel after the war uh, as a prefix to their, their, uh, their name. And um, they formed the Theosophical Society, and it was a, you know, a struggling little venture. And, and uh, uh, after some time, she, Blavatsky, and Olcott uh, moved to India to do work there. And uh, Judge stayed behind to keep the work going in America. That's, you know, in a nutshell, there's a lot of history. I mean, there's mounds of history books uh, about this. Uh, Was the society focused on any particular spiritual tradition? Well, you know, when, when H.P.B., H.P. Blavatsky, uh, came here to America... It said that, that she was uh, interested in working with the spiritualists. She was uh, uh, working in that way, and that she herself had some mediumistic tendencies. Uh, however, she, from her travels and her teachers, um, was pointing out points that she rather disagreed with a lot of the modern spiritualist movement of that time and what she would say her ideas of what the phenomena really is or meant, and uh, that we should stress, of course, uh, uh, the desire to know rather than to, to label. Did she acknowledge that there was a lot of uh, fraud in yes. the spiritualist movement? And and some that was not. And, of course, probably, if I can judge by my own studies, people that did both. You know, and probably to this day there are still people doing both, where they have some talent of some spiritual nature, and and in order to make things work, you know, it's it's easy to give people what they want. Mm -hmm. um, 
that was the uh, the beginning there in New York, and they went on to to India, and they formed branches in Europe and England, and all over the world. There were branches in South America. Uh, became a worldwide organization. Went through a lot of changes, and uh, of course, her first book, Isis Unveiled, that was published, uh, was published in in New York, and uh, later she writes the Secret Doctrine, which uh, she's uh, says contains maybe 20 pages of what was in ISIS, and uh, and the rest of it is a different focus on the theosophical approach to truth. What would you say is the is there any one thread that runs through that very very uh, voluminous book of ISIS unveiled? It it seems to. I could open it up anywhere and and read something, and it doesn't seem to have as much to do with three chapters ago, Hmm. at least at a superficial reading. Some have said that Isis Unveiled is a great encyclopedia of occultism without uh, your standard encyclopedia method of uh, A, B, C, D, let's look in the index. That probably works for me, sure. And also, she was writing in English, uh, which was her third language, uh, Russian, followed by French. And uh, again, depending upon wh- who you read and, and what you want to uh, uh, accept, she was either told by her teachers to write in English uh, because that is the, the seedbed of uh, what's to come, is the English language, and uh, which has become a worldwide language. Uh, and so she learned English and... and uh, was writing there. She did have help, of course, with her uh, Henry Steele Olcott and William Judge and helping her with her grammar. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, president of Interfaith Dialogue Association, and today my guest is John Rao, and we're talking about the Theosophical Society and Theosophy. Was You, you mentioned uh, Blavatsky's teachers. Who were her teachers? Her teachers were many people, I'm certain, that she encountered on her travels. There are two teachers that she referred to, uh, and they used pseudonyms uh, when, she, when she referred to them, and, and they themselves later uh, said, these are not our names. Um, it was a mystery-type teaching that she was giving out, and they are mysterious in their own way. Uh, later... And, of course, today in, in, in our theosophical movement, my personal uh, uh, approach is to not stress so much on her teachers rather than the teachings or the ideas and the symbols. Um, someone wrote somewhere in a theosophical uh, a periodical one time, uh, I've, I've forgotten who at the moment, uh, often Blavatsky's uh, uh, teachers were referred to as masters and uh, he said whoever the author was it was a man uh, which I found uh, an interesting quote he says it was important to get to the masters but now it's important to get away from them Uh, the ideas are what's important Uh, it's true that some of the uh, uh, teachings that she received through her teachers uh, were said to be telepathic Uh, not quite the same thing as today's uh, channeling. 
uh, because she stressed, and as did many others, uh, that they were men like you and I sitting at this table, and they weren't spirits, and they weren't from higher planes and different planets. And, and there has been a lot since then uh, that's been unfortunately uh, written and put down uh, about, uh, uh, well, let's say a lot of their names have been sort of uh, run through the mud over the last century with different approaches as to who they were or what they were, rather than just stressing on the teachings, which I think is the important point. So from what I gather, there's uh, there's a lot of Hindu-Buddhist influence in theosophy and also some ancient Egyptian, obviously, with with a name like Isis. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? There's everything in theosophy. It, it, the theos- the the- one of the theosophical methods uh, for comparative religion purposes is to look at all great religious movements, ideas, philosophies, sciences, mythologies, attempt in our own minds as individuals to remove what we think is possibly uh, man-made extra filler, and we may discover that they teach a common truth, a common thread. And, And at that point, possibly, we're approaching what the truth may be. Again, keeping in mind that our individual pictures of truth should continue to change and probably will as we grow. Uh, One of the, uh, if I could do a footnote here a little bit, one of the uh, concepts that theosophy, of course, stresses a lot from Hinduism and Buddhism and, and other isms is the concept of reincarnation. And you can study quite a bit of theosophical material as to what happens at death and what happens at rebirth and what reincarnation is. And however a picture, however a person wants to picture it is, of course, their their business. But I may use the same words today to you if we discuss reincarnation as to what it may or may not be. And that I might use 10 years from now if we meet again. My picture of what is actually happening as I'm thinking it out may may be quite different. We're, we're, we're held into the bounds by the words we, we must use. Let's talk about Annie Besant. Okay. Uh, now, was she a founder? She came on later. It's interesting how she came on. Uh, the story, again, in a nutshell, and there is a lot of history, is that when The Secret Doctrine was written near the end of H.P.B.'s uh, career, uh, which is considered the, the master source work for a lot of theosophical inquiry. Uh, it was sent out to be uh, uh, judged by various people, you know, and, and commentaries, and not necessarily proofread because it was already in a, in a state of publication, but, but it was sent to uh, George Bernard Shaw, and he didn't have any interest, it is said, to, to even look at it. So he handed it to his friend, Annie Besant, to uh, uh, do a review on, a book review. She read it and immediately sought out H.P. Blavatsky and uh, joined the society and became a, uh, uh, a member. And then later, after the split that we had mentioned between the two different societies, she's with the European Adyar group of theosophists and and William Judge is uh, doing the American, which what has become the Pasadena thing over here. And uh, she did some great work, that's for sure. 
Her book, um, Esoteric Christianity. It's a good book. Very powerful. Yeah. Give me your take on that. Well, you know, there's a... a I think all... I really can't do a book review for you on, on her esoteric Christianity except to say that I've read it. It's in my library with many hundreds of others' uh, books. But esoteric, esotericism runs through Christianity as it runs through Buddhism, as it runs through Hinduism, as it runs through any uh, religion. And uh, I certainly am convinced that there is an esoteric side to, to everything. Uh, the esoteric nature is that which is hard to understand or that which is not easy to discover uh, versus the, the surface teachings for uh, people that uh, uh, either have no interest in, in going deeper or are pleased with their religious beliefs the way they are at the moment. Um, even in the uh, New Testament, I believe, we hear uh, the words attributed to Jesus saying to the masses, I teach one thing, to, to my disciples another. Uh, in the Hindu movements, there's the esoteric doctrines that uh, at one time were, were kept rather secret by uh, a higher caste of people, and then the Upanishads come. And the Upanishads uh, are an esoteric interpretation for everyone to use, uh, as is uh, approaches to esoteric Christianity. Uh, in our studies of theosophy, we have lots and lots of detailed little things we can study to help us understand. Uh, it's important not to, I think it's important, and, and I think that all of the writers and teachers of theosophical texts remind people that it's important not to crystallize those thoughts to allow them to, to uh, give you this picture and be ready for the next. Uh, because as soon as we grasp onto it, then we're looking at a dogma. And in, in the theosophical movement, we try to stay away from dogmas. It sometimes sounds dogmatic when you're reading a teaching. But if you are reading a book that says, this is what we're saying, but you know, don't crystallize it, then it's, it's easy to... to uh, read something and not have to grasp to it as the absolute truth. Sure. I've always said that there's a difference between doctrine and dogma. Mm. So what, yeah. Yeah. what you're reading in, in one of the theosophical books may be doctrine. Mm. Or theosophical theology. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an approach that one need not take. You know, uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about the theosophical philosophy and I can remember reading Judge early on, William Judge, who was, a, along with Olcott, a, a lawyer in New York City that hooked up with Blavatsky. And uh, I said, this is great. I can remember reading uh, other theosophical material that I, I didn't really uh, jibe with uh, as a young man. Uh, the Secret Doctrine I always found fascinating, and Isis, like you say. Um, but there comes a time when... Uh, some of those thoughts start to gel, and again, uh, the the, uh, the no doc the no uh, uh, accepted doctrines uh, is important in the Theosophical movement. Anybody can believe anything they like. Uh, most Theosophists, and I would say all Theosophists, 
who become serious workers do accept the one concept of universal brotherhood, uh, which is so important. It's the most important. We study how ancient teachings and traditions speak of how the universe comes into existence through Hindu texts and Buddhist texts and Blavatsky's writings and Gottfried Peruker's writings, who follows later in, 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 in writing many books based upon the secret doctrine. And um, when you see this unfoldment of man uh, coming into existence and all of the other kingdoms around him, and you see that, that everything is evolving, it's just so uh, important to accept the concept of universal brotherhood because at that point you really can't judge people and, and peace is, is the absolute result someday, I would hope. Is there any room for ritual in theosophy? There are people who, who well, of course, not in theosophy, but theosophists may use ritual. Uh, I, I'm, I do feel that uh, uh, the rituals that people may choose to use are aids in understanding, but they're not absolutely necessary. One could understand just as well if that is their temperament without a ritual. Uh, we have no rituals that we use in our organizations except to meet in peace and, and have a discussion and listen to presentations and fraternize, you know. And there are no, uh, for instance, marriages performed within within a theosophical liturgy or anything no, like that. If, no. if, if, you're, if a theosophist wants to marry a theosophist, it's, you know, pick your own, right? Right. Pick your own, whether right. you want a, a Hindu priest or go down sure. to the courthouse or a That's right. Methodist minister. That's right. Um, there are people in the theosophical past who have been called teachers, Blavatsky for one, but, but essentially we're all our own teacher. And, and so we are our own initiators of uh, how we want to live our lives. As we wrap up uh, this, this first uh, half hour, uh, let me ask you to talk a little bit about the programs that you put on. Okay. Here in West Michigan, uh, at this point, we're, we're uh, doing monthly, sometimes bi-weekly, depending upon cycles and time and who can do what, uh, who's available in our group of workers. We, we meet for discussion. We do book studies. Um, as you and I had discussed before, I think, I guess maybe we didn't. We, uh, uh, for the last year and a half, have been meeting with prison inmates that are interested in theosophy. Uh, the nice thing about that program is that they called for it. It's, uh, uh, we, uh, we, we attempt to stage uh, small or large events and let people decide whether they want to attend or not rather than to coerce. Uh, it's just available. And uh, we meet in health food stores at the moment up in uh, Remus, a very nice health food store up there that the uh, lady uh, uh, joins us in, in these meetings. And, and, and uh, real quick, because we okay. are just about out of time, give us a phone number. Oh, area code 231-867-3946. Very good. Well, John, I'm going to ask you to come back next week, and we'll continue this discussion. All right. 
Thank you. I I thank you for your time today. I'm Fred Stella. This is Common Threads here on WGVU. We've been speaking with John Rao on Theosophy. And please join us again next week when we'll continue this discussion. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our discussion on theosophy. John Rao was in the studio then, and he's here today. And I'd like to tell you just a little bit about him. He studied comparative religions and theosophy since his late teens and early 20s. And he opened a bookshop in Santa Fe in 1984 and soon joined the Theosophical Society, the Pasadena branch. And with his wife, they've uh, conducted public discussions and presentations They moved their bookshop to Grand Rapids in 1990 and then moved the bookshop to Macosta County in uh, 1999 and also at that time with other West Michigan workers founded the Great Lakes branch of the Theosophical Society Pasadena. John, welcome again to Common Threads. It's good to be back. Got to ask you, what drew you from Santa Fe to Grand Rapids, Michigan? Well, at the time in Santa Fe, we had a successful bookstore going, my wife and I, and and, uh, but it was rented property, and Santa Fe is very high rent. And we were thinking if we're going to stay booksellers to maintain our living, we needed a place where we could afford to buy a house and attempt to pay it off at some point in time. We traveled around. I'm from this part of the world. Uh, my wife is from Texas, and, and I'm from Big Rapids. I didn't really grow up there, but I was born there and returned often in the summers. We drove up here as one of the half a dozen places we were considering, and and we just chose it and uh, actually uh, uh, made a quick decision, and a year later we were here. And what is the name of your bookstore? Uh, currently it's called Macosta Book Gallery. And what was it here when it was on Leonard? Book Gallery. That's right. 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 And now, it, it going from Santa Fe to Grand Rapids, when you're talking about an esoteric bookstore, mm. you know, that sounds like an interesting move. It sounds even more interesting going from Grand Rapids to uh, a small town in Macosta. We are heavy in the esoteric uh, uh, books. That's for certain. We have a large section. But our store isn't just esoteric. So 
uh, a time came in Grand Rapids where it was time to uh, think about buying some real estate. And it was much more affordable than we cost, and we already had a house up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we decided to do. And we just did it, and it's doing okay. So you also sell current titles? And- oh, we have a lot of current used and out-of-print titles, but everything we have is secondhand, with the exception of a lot of new theosophy books. Ah, okay. We buy and sell used and out-of-print hardbacks and paperbacks. So you're not really competing, especially up there with the, with the Barnes and & Nobles and all of that? No, no, no. No new books except, like I say, a, a great theosophy section. Very good. Uh, well, last week we were talking about uh, a lot of the names that people associate with theosophy right off the bat, uh, such as Blavatsky and Besant. Uh, I want to mention this to you. You probably know this, but I was in, I'm trying to think which city, it was either Bombay or Bangalore. Okay. And I saw Annie Besant Road. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, she was uh, uh, very important, as was Henry Steele Olcott. Uh, in Cylon, I'm told there's a postage stamp. Uh, well, I've seen a picture of it, so I know there was. And, and, and like we have the Gerald R. Freeway here, there is an Olcott f- Freeway or something. And uh, in India, and in in Ceylon, or what's oh, now oh, Sri, oh, Sri, Lanka. Sri Lanka, and uh, what is now Sri Lanka, and uh, there, uh, the uh, Theosophy is very uh, uh, well accepted amongst many Indians. Um, they did a lot of work there: Annie Besant, Blavatsky, Olcott, and. Uh, at one time, Olcott is uh, credited with uh, reviving uh, Buddhism in what is now Sri Lanka. Uh, there was a time, according to the histories, that uh, uh, Buddhists in, in what was then Ceylon uh, were prohibited from practicing their religion by uh, certain groups of uh, missionaries. And... Uh, Olcott, before he left the United States, had been given, the way I understand it, uh, some presidential papers of recommendation because he was uh, known in the government. He was on the uh, uh, inquiry into the assassination of uh, Lincoln and things like that. And so he had connections. So he carried his letters and went to England, I guess, and saw to it that the Buddhists were given back their right to worship. And he even wrote a book, uh, Buddhist Catechism, which they used in the uh, schools down there. Do you have any idea when when Blavatsky and Besant went into India, was was there any offense taken uh, by the uh, Indians? Wait a minute, what are you hmm. what are you white folks trying to tell us about our religion? Okay, you can understand the the British sending their missionaries. Sure who were experts in their religion, mm-hmm. Christianity. But, you know, how were they accepted? Any idea? Well, there, there were many who accepted them with open arms. But, of course, uh, at that time, there were certain uh, higher, well, even though the caste system uh, is supposed to be on its way out, we all know that there are definitely castes uh, that are still working in some way. Uh, and at that time, there were... Uh, 
certain Brahmins that did not like, it is reported that did not care for the teachings of H.P. Blavatsky because it's also reported that she was giving to people teachings that they considered secret. Whether that's true or not, you know, that, that's, uh, that's history. And history is a strange thing. You know, I, I like to say I was there last weekend and I don't even remember it right, uh, you know, if I wrote it down. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of history around that. She certainly had plenty of enemies, but she had lots of friends, too. Blavatsky did. And uh, Basant, uh, her, her uh, work in India by herself came after Blavatsky's death. And she worked uh, for Indian independence and women's rights and did a lot of great work there. And, of course, doing something like that breeds enemies. Certainly. Right. Certainly it does. A lot of people enjoy discussing cosmic consciousness mm. and, and the ultimate realities what about good old-fashioned morality? How does that play into theosophy? Well, I would say that ethics is the most important result of sincere theosophical study. You know, in our theosophical landscape of ideas, we talk about, as the Kabbalists do and, and others in their own way, the descending of uh, God becoming the many. One becomes the many, and in the cycles, eventually the many become the one. Um, and if one takes a look at those types of teachings, whether they call themselves theosophical or Kabbalistic or Rosicrucian or, or uh, esoteric Christianity or uh, whatever, Buddhism, esoteric Hinduism, uh, if one looks at those teachings and sees that we come from one source from this perspective and return to one source, then ethics is a natural result, and so would be morality. And all of us fail. We're human. We're, uh, uh, we're in this material realm, and I know that I fail every day doing things that I are thinking thoughts, if nothing else, that I shouldn't think. Uh, but we simply try and move on. Um, so I think ethics is a natural result. When, when you look at, at the theosophical philosophy uh, in detail, uh, your brother is you. The plants in your garden is of the same nature that we are. Even when we divide man or anything up into, say, seven principles, I want to discuss the Atman, Bodhi, Manas, and the other lower principles. Uh, we say that the plants have the same principle, or at least the the entities making up those plants have the same principles, but they're operating through a plant kingdom, an animal kingdom, or a beast kingdom, and we're in a human stage, and there would be beings above us. So everything we can possibly imagine has the same spark of godhood in it and therefore ethics and an attempt at morality should follow immediately is there room in theosophy for the concept of an enlightened one a buddha that is somebody who is in human form who has 
transcended faults and bad thoughts and any, any certainly there certainly is we, we accept that there are great ones among us and there have been and there will be and that there are right now um, I think in today's society it's uh, with our worldwide society and our instant communications I would imagine that most of the great ones of, that are aware of their nature are uh, staying relatively silent. Is there any speculation? Uh, obviously, uh, it wouldn't be a dogma, but is there any uh, credence to the possibility of Blavatsky or Besant being masters, or is that not discussed? Is that not important? Eventually, we will all become masters through our various from this, from from one perspective, again, I must stress we we have no firm uh, dogmas, but the, some of the teachings and the ideas through our various incarnations, as we run the race successfully, uh, in the future we will all be Buddha-like um, as we continue. You know, there is a saying that I think comes from many theosophists, but I believe William Judge uh, says it more than once is that our work as theosophists is to affect the booty and the manas of the races to come. Uh, booty the being, mind and the intelligence. Uh, the, the mind and the spiritual uh, uh, aspects of our nature. Booty could be replaced with Christos as part of a personal Christ nature. And when we say that, not only are we thinking of people or animals or anything else in the future that will become, but we're also thinking about ourselves because if reincarnation in any way is a fact of our existence in this globe, then uh, we are working not only to to uh, affect the booty and the manas of the races to come, but ourselves too. And theosophy will go further and say that after millions of years, we will all blossom forth into God-like beings, as we were before we became chips off the old block and descended into matter as a constantly reoccurring in-breathing and out-breathing cycle. I notice you uh, brought a few copies of your uh, newsletter, the, the Kali Yuga Rag. Right. So is it generally accepted in theosophy that this we are living in the Kali Yuga? Most theosophists would accept that, yes. I believe most would. Talk about the yugas. I don't think we've ever done that on this program. Well, the yugas are uh, four ages that theosophists take and borrow from Hindus. In, in many of the writings, uh, it is said that the time scales that Hindus use for the four different ages are uh, essentially correct with the footnote as far as that goes is an esoteric, exoteric teaching, exoteric being on the surface and esoteric being whatever the truth really is. Uh, the Kali Yuga is the shortest of ages. And, and just to make a, a quick uh, a statement of the, the ages, the Kali Yuga being the shortest is said to be of uh, uh, four parts hard and one part soft, or you could pick other words if you like. Uh, you could pick one part good, four parts bad, but that sounds pretty negative. You know, it's a hard age. It will be followed by ages that are longer, but uh, easier to swallow, more like golden ages. There are three other ages, which would be three part, two parts, excuse me, uh, 
four parts good, three parts good, two parts soft, and we get to the Kali Yuga. The interesting thing that is taught not only in theosophy, but I believe in many Upanishadic texts, is that in the Kali Yuga, we have great chance for advancement because we have to work hard. Uh, it's not handed to us. We're, we're given... Uh, we're given leanings to where we have to strive harder. And because of that, our inner natures uh, have the option to, to progress and become uh, better as human beings. Uh, Kali Yuga is said to have uh, started with the death of Krishna, um, or one would say the removal of Krishna, if Krishna is an avatar. Uh, and it lasts uh, 432,000 years. There are other teachings, of course, that say it lasts much longer, which is the interesting thing about all of these uh, things. One can look at it and, and grasp what they want from it. It's said that we're you know, about 5,000, a little more years into the Kali Yuga, and that it is a hard age. If you're just joining us, this is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. And with me in the studio today is John Rao. We're talking about theosophy. So we're 5,000 years into this, and uh, you decided to create a newsletter named after it, huh? I just kind of like the name. So did my wife. We were When we started our West Michigan newsletter, we thought we'd call it the Calayuga Rag. The rag, you know, being a play on, on, on words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ragstock is is a, is a printing paper that people used to call. Is you could pick up a newspaper and call it a rag, and and uh, rag is also a dance. And uh, we thought it was a good choice for our newsletter. They're just an occasional newsletter that goes out, telling people what we're up to, what we're doing, a couple of articles, and letting people know how they can you know reach the uh, various. Theosophical organizations uh, today, the web has become a great thing. And if I might point out that all, including ISIS Unveiled, that you mentioned last week, uh, ISIS Unveiled, and all of the standard uh, Theosophical classic texts are all now posted to the web for anyone to read. Some of them are in downloadable format. You can download the entire Secret Doctrine into your computer and read it. It's yours. Uh, it's for individuals to use as they please. All of the uh, texts that show up in the Theosophical University Press catalog are there. So we like to keep people aware that, you know, they can check this stuff out. Uh, and they don't even have to buy a book if they want to look at it. They can get to the library, go on the web, and see what it says. Tell us a little bit about your experiences working in prisons. You mentioned it just briefly last week. You know, it's been a really uh, uplifting experience for my wife and I. We do our theosophy work together. And uh, uh, originally, the, the, the uh, well, going back in time, there's always been some prison work involved with the Theosophical Society. And even if one opens up one of the Theosophical University Press catalogs, one of the things you'll see on the first page is prisoner discounts. Uh, how they can get books and, and pay a little less. Uh, and as part of our correspondence programs that's going on at our headquarters in Pasadena, quite often uh, there are prisoners in various locations taking uh, courses or at least communicating. 
And at one point, uh, a lady by the name of Nancy Coker sent some uh, older Sunrise magazines, which are theosophical uh, magazine that's been in print since 1951, uh, there for them to use. And some of them had already been subscribers. Many of these fellows in this particular prison in Michigan had uh, uh, books on theosophy, and, and they asked if somebody could come and talk, uh, which I did. I went into the prison and, and gave a, a talk, and then followed by discussion with 18 or 19 fellows. And uh, quite a few of them, as I uh, found, were very well read and uh, very interested in universal brotherhood and and other religious philosophies. And uh, there was a request for a second one, and we went down. I went in and talked again, and we were observed at that time by uh, one of the managers of the prisons, and we passed uh, the test and they said it could become a regular program. Well, what was, was the test? Oh, who knows? You know, I mean... At that point, we became, well, you know, who knows what we're saying to prisoners? I mean, it has to be observed. Uh, and uh, at that point, we went from uh, visitors to volunteers. Uh, we received a volunteer status. And now my wife and I go down almost every month and, unless there's a, uh, some sort of problem, weather or something. And we, we meet with several fellows that are uh, some new ones joining the group and, and others. Uh, some have been released and, and are out there, and, of course, we all wish them well. And it's just a great experience. I'm telling you, if they uh, had uh, well, if they had the time, we could do it every week. But, you know, it takes uh, time and energy to do everything. And you have to travel how far to get there? Well, we go to South Michigan, and, and uh, uh, due to the fragileness of, of all of that, uh, I'm not going to name the institution, but... but uh, uh, for all I know, there could be a relative that would object. Uh, but we go to South Michigan. We travel three hours. And uh, my wife and I usually spend a night in a motel and make a mini vacation out of it and, and just have a great time. When we come out of there, we feel energized. I hope they do, too. But it's not what we have to say. What's going on is what all what should go on in most theosophical discussions is that it becomes a discussion and everybody participates. Discussions are so much better than lectures and presentations. And nobody's wrong. You know, and and probably nobody's right, including me. <laughs> but it's a great thing. Do you have group meditation at all in well, we uh Leave that up to individuals uh, because it would require some doctrine and techniques and instruction. And we're not here to instruct. We're here to uh, discuss universal brotherhood, lay out our teachings or our ideas, let people use them as they will. There are, uh, in fact, a lot of, as far as meditation, uh, I'm sure that just being silent sometimes before our meetings, which often always happens uh, when people have come together to talk, is a form of meditation, but it's a personal thing. And there are many different ways to meditate, and we really have no interest in pointing at one. 
We let people decide for themselves. So what if someone comes to you and, and they're going to your meetings and they've heard about meditation and say, John, I'd really like to learn how to meditate. You would say what? <laughs> I would say that's great. You should go out and learn how to meditate. I mean, that's their, their, their point of view. I would certainly have something to say on it as people meditate in different ways, as I just said. I mean, I have a form of meditation, but it may not be for someone else. Uh, there are techniques in, uh, that some people teach that may actually, in some way, be harmful to some people. And we would not really want to take that on. In fact, I would say that there are no techniques ever given out in a theosophical meeting that, that uh, we lead of any type. Uh, that is an individual thing to do. Uh, there's techniques to gardening. You know, but you could still get together and talk about how great it is to garden and what kind of plants are you growing and how great the flowers look this year. And then everyone else has their own method of making those flowers grow. be nice if they did it without poisons. But, you know, that's my approach. I understand that. And you have meetings here in Grand Rapids as well? Occasionally there's a meetings in the basement of a fellow's house. Uh, they're by word of mouth. And... Uh, they're always posted on our web page, or sometimes we do a mailing, or if we put out a Kali Yuga rag, it'll be posted in there. Sometimes uh, when, when things are flowing right, they're even bi-weekly in Grand Rapids. We're hoping to do more in Grand Rapids. Uh, next month, we're doing some uh, work in Lansing. Give us some contact information, then, if you will. Your, your phone number, websites, email... Phone number for the Great Lakes branch is 231-867-3946. The web page is centurytel.net slash theosophy. The email will be on that web page. The mailing address is P.O. Box 370, Macosta, Michigan, 49332. Uh, from our webpage, you can link to any of the Theosophical webpages that are, that are currently offering the full-text books online, our American section, uh, the international headquarters, and uh, that's CenturyTel, C-E-N-T-U-R-Y-T-E-L dot net slash Theosophy. Are there any uh, activities coming up that you'd like to promote other than oh yeah promotion is always uh, uh, an interesting thing we like to let people know that it's happening next uh, in, in lansing it will be the next one that's uh, definitely glued for this month and it's uh, sunday february 22nd at 1 p.m i'll be speaking at uh, the mountain books and gifts uh, at 603 waverly road in lansing michigan John, I want to thank you so very much for joining us these past couple of weeks. Thank you. I'm Fred Stella, and this has been Common Threads. We've been speaking with John Rao on the Theosophical Society and the concept of theosophy in general. Please join us again next week for more conversation. You're listening to WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. 
In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.